0: Chapter Two of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume Two. By John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter Two The Conventions of Eighteen Fifty Six. In the State of Illinois the spring of the year 1856 saw an almost spontaneous impulse toward the formation of a new party. As already described, it was a transition period in politics. The disorganization of the Whig Party was materially increased and hastened by the failure, two years before, to make Lincoln a senator. On the other hand, the election of Trumbull served quite as effectively to consolidate the Democratic rebellion against Douglas in his determination to make the support of his Nebraska bill a test of party orthodoxy. Many of the northern counties had formed Republican organizations in the two previous years, but the name was entirely local, while the opposition, not yet united, but fighting in factions against the Nebraska bill, only acknowledged political affinity under the general term of the Anti-Nebraska Party. In the absence of any existing party machinery, some fifteen editors of anti-Nebraska newspapers met for conference at Decatur on the 22nd of February and issued a call for a delegate state convention of the anti-Nebraska party, to meet at Bloomington on the 29th of May. Prominent leaders, as a rule, hesitated to commit themselves by their presence at Decatur. Not so with Mr. Lincoln. He could not attend the deliberations as an editor, but he doubtless lent his suggestion and advice, for we find him among the distinguished guests and speakers at the banquet which followed the business session, and toasts to his candidacy as the next United States senator showed that his leadership had suffered no abatement. The assembled editors purposely set the Bloomington Convention for a somewhat late day in the campaign, and before the time arrived, the political situation in the state was already much more clearly defined. One factor which greatly baffled the calculations and forecast of politicians was the Know Nothing or American Party. It was apparent to all that this order or affiliation had during the past two years spread into Illinois as into other states. But as its machinery and action were secret, and as no general election had occurred since 1854 to exhibit its numerical strength, its possible scope and influence could only be vaguely estimated. Still, it was clearly present as a positive force. Its National Council had in February at Philadelphia nominated Fillmore and Donelson as a presidential ticket, but the preponderating Southern membership forced an endorsement of the Kansas-Nebraska Act into its platform, which destroyed the unity and power of the party, driving the Northern delegates to a bolt. Nevertheless, many Northern voters, indifferent to the slavery issue, still sought to maintain its organization. And thus, in Illinois, the State Council met early in May, ratified the nomination of Fillmore for President, and nominated candidates for governor and other state officers. The Democratic Party, or rather so much of that party as did not openly repudiate the policy and principle of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, made early preparations for a vigorous campaign. The great loss in prestige and numbers he had already sustained admonished Douglas that his political fortunes hung in a doubtful balance but he was a bold and aggressive leader to whom controversy and party warfare were rather an inspiration than a discouragement. Under his guidance, the Democratic State Convention nominated for Governor of Illinois William A. Richardson, late a member of the House of Representatives, in which body, as chairman of the Committee on Territories, he had been the leader to whom the success of the Nebraska Bill was specially entrusted and where his parliamentary management had contributed materially to the final passage of that measure. Thus the attitude of opposing factions, and the unorganized unfolding of public opinion, rather than any mere promptings or combinations of leaders, developed the course of the anti-Nebraska men of Illinois. Out of this condition sprung directly one important element of future success. Richardson's candidacy, long foreshadowed, was seen to require an opposing nominee of unusual popularity. He was found in the person of Colonel William H. Bissell, late a Democratic representative in Congress, where he had denounced disunion in 1850 and opposed the Nebraska Bill in 1854. He had led a regiment to the Mexican War and fought gallantly at the Battle of Buena Vista. His military laurels Easily carried him into Congress, but the exposures of the Mexican campaign also burdened him with a disease which paralyzed his lower limbs and compelled retirement from active politics after his second term. He was now, however, recovering, and having already exhibited civic talents of a high order, the popular voice made light of his physical infirmity, and his friends declared their readiness to match the brains of Bissell against the legs of his opponents one piece of his history rendered him specially acceptable to young and spirited western voters his service in congress began amid exciting debates over the compromise measures of eighteen fifty when the southern fire eaters were already rampant seddon of virginia in his eagerness to depreciate the north and glorify the south affirmed in a speech that at the battle of buena vista at that most critical juncture, when all seemed lost save honor, amid the discomfiture and rout of the brave but unfortunate troops of the North through a mistaken order, the noble regiment of Mississippians had snatched victory from the jaws of death. Replying some days later to Seddon's innuendo, Bissell, competent by his presence on the battlefield to bear witness retorted that when the Second Indiana gave way, it was McKee's Second Kentucky, Hardin's First Illinois, and Bissell's Second Illinois, which had retrieved the fortunes of the hour, and that the vaunted Mississippi regiment was not within a mile and a half of the scene of action. Properly, this was an issue of veracity between Seddon and Bissell, of easy solution. But Jefferson Davis, who commanded the mississippi regiment in question began an interchange of notes with bissell which from the first smelt of gunpowder were his reported remarks correct asked davis in substance bissell answered repeating the language of his speech and defining the spot and the time to which it applied adding i deem it due in justice alike to myself and the mississippi regiment to say that I made no charge against that regiment. Davis, persisting, then asked, in substance, whether he meant to deny General Lane's official report that the regiment of Mississippians came to the rescue at the proper time to save the fortunes of the day. Bissell rejoined, My remarks had reference to a different time and place from those referred to by General Lane." At this point, both parties might with great propriety have ended the correspondence. Sufficient inquiry had been met by generous explanation. But Davis, apparently determined to push Bissell to the wall, now sent his challenge. This time, however, he met his match in courage. Bissell named an officer of the army as his second, instructing him to suggest as weapons muskets loaded with ball and buckshot. The terms of combat do not appear to have been formally proposed between friends who met to arrange matters, but they were evidently understood. The affair was hushed up, with the simple addition to Bissell's first reply that he was willing to award the Mississippi Regiment the credit due to their gallant and distinguished services in that battle. The Bloomington Convention came together according to call on the 29th of May. By this time the active and observant politicians of the state had become convinced that the anti-Nebraska struggle was not a mere temporary and insignificant abolition excitement, but a deep and abiding political issue involving in the fate of slavery the fate of the nation. Minor and past differences were therefore generously postponed, or waived in favor of a hearty coalition on the single dominant question. A most notable gathering of the clans was the result. About one-fourth of the counties sent regularly chosen delegates, the rest were volunteers. In spirit and enthusiasm, it was rather a mass meeting than a convention, but every man present was in some sort a leader in his own locality. The assemblage was much more representative than similar bodies gathered by the ordinary caucus machinery. It was an earnest and determined council of five or six hundred cool, sagacious, independent thinkers, called together by great public exigency, led and directed by the first minds of the State. Not only did it show a brilliant array of eminent names, but a remarkable contrast of former antagonisms—Whigs, Democrats, Free Soilers, Know-Nothings, Abolitionists, Norman B. Judd, Richard Yates— Ebenezer Peck, Leonard Sweat, Lyman Trumbull, David Davis, Owen Lovejoy, Orville H. Browning, Ichabod Godding, Archibald Williams, and many more. Chief among these, as adviser and actor, was Abraham Lincoln. Rarely has a deliberative body met under circumstances more exciting than did this one. The congressional debates at Washington and the Civil War in Kansas were each at a culmination of passion and incident. Within ten days Charles Sumner had been struck down in the Senate chamber, and the town of Lawrence sacked by the guerrilla posse of Atchison and Sheriff Jones. Ex-Governor Reeder, of that suffering territory, addressed the citizens of Bloomington and the earliest arriving delegates on the evening of the 28th, bringing into the convention the very atmosphere of the Kansas conflict. The convention met and conducted its work with earnestness and dignity. Bissell, already designated by unmistakable popular indications, was nominated for governor by acclamation. The candidate for lieutenant governor was named in like manner. So little did the Convention think or care about the mere distribution of political honors on the one hand, and so much on the other, did it regard and provide for the success of the cause, that it did not even ballot for the remaining candidates on the state ticket, but deputed to a committee the task of selecting and arranging them, and adopted its report as a whole and by acclamation. The more difficult task of drafting a platform was performed by another committee with such prudence that it too received a unanimous acceptance. It boldly adopted the Republican name, formulated the Republican creed, and the Convention further appointed delegates to the coming Republican National Convention. There were stirring speeches by eloquent leaders, eagerly listened to and vociferously applauded, but scarcely a man moved from his seat in the crowded hall until Mr. Lincoln had been heard. Every one felt the fitness of his making the closing argument and exhortation, and right nobly did he honor their demand. A silence full of emotion filled the assembly, as for a moment before beginning his tall form stood in commanding attitude on the rostrum, The impressiveness of his theme and the significance of the occasion reflected in his thoughtful and earnest features. The spell of the hour was visibly upon him, and holding his audience in rapt attention, he closed in a brilliant peroration with an appeal to the people to join the Republican standard to, Come as the winds come, when the forests are rended, Come as the waves come, when navies are stranded. The influence was irresistible. The audience rose and acknowledged the speaker's power with cheer upon cheer. Unfortunately, the speech was never reported, but its effect lives vividly in the memory of all who heard it, and it crowned his right to popular leadership in his own state, which thereafter was never disputed. The organization of the Republican Party for the nation at large proceeded very much in the same manner as that in the state of Illinois. Pursuant to separate preliminary correspondence and calls from state committees, a general meeting of prominent Republicans and anti-Nebraska politicians from all parts of the North and even from a few border slave states came together at Pittsburgh on Washington's birthday, February 22nd. Ohio, New York, and Pennsylvania sent the largest contingents, but around this great central nucleus were gathered small but earnest delegations, aggregating between three and four hundred zealous leaders, representing twenty-eight states and territories. It was merely an informal mass convention, but many of the delegates were men of national character, each of whose names was itself a sufficient credential. Above all, the members were cautious, moderate, conciliatory, and unambitious to act beyond the requirements of the hour. They contented themselves with the usual parliamentary routine, appointed a committee on national organization, issued a call for delegate convention, and adopted and put forth a stirring address to the country. Their resolutions were brief and formulated but four the repeal of all laws which allow the introduction of slavery into territories once consecrated to freedom, resistance by constitutional means to slavery in any United States territory, the immediate admission of Kansas as a free state, and the overthrow of the present national administration. In response to the official call embodied in the Pittsburgh Address, the first National Convention of the Republican Party met at Philadelphia on the 17th of June, 1856. The character and dignity of the Pittsburgh proceedings assured the new party of immediate prestige and acceptance. With so favorable a sponsorship, it sprang full-armed into the political conflict. That conflict which opened the year with a long congressional contest over the speakership and which found its only solution in the choice of banks by a plurality vote, had been fed by fierce congressional debates, by presidential messages and proclamations, by national conventions, by the Sumner assault, by the Kansas War, the body politic throbbed with activity and excitement in every fiber. Every free state and several border states and territories were represented in the Philadelphia Convention. Its regular and irregular delegates counted nearly a thousand local leaders, full of the zeal of new proselytes. Henry S. Lane of Indiana was made its permanent chairman. The party was too young, and its prospect of immediate success too slender to develop any serious rivalry for a presidential nomination. Because its strength lay evidently among the former adherents of the now dissolved and abandoned Whig Party, William H. Seward, of course, took highest rank in leadership. After him stood Salmon P. Chase as the representative of the Independent Democrats, who, bringing fewer voters, had nevertheless contributed the main share of the courageous pioneer work. It is a just tribute to their sagacity that both were willing to wait for the maturer, strength, and riper opportunities of the new organization. Justice John McLean, of the Supreme Bench, an eminent jurist, a faithful Whig, whose character happily combined both the energy and the conservatism of the Great West, also had a large following. But, as might have been expected, the Convention found a more typical leader, young in years, daring in character, brilliant in exploit, and after one informal ballot it nominated John C. Fremont of California. The credit of the selection and its successful management has been popularly awarded to Francis P. Blair, Sr., famous as the talented and powerful newspaper lieutenant of President Jackson, but it was rather an intuitive popular choice, which at the moment seemed so appropriate as to preclude necessity for artful intrigue. There was a dash of romance in the personal history of Fremont which gave his nomination a high popular relish. Of French descent, born in Savannah, Georgia, orphaned at an early age, he acquired a scientific education largely by his own unaided efforts in private study. A sea voyage as a teacher of mathematics, and employment in a railroad survey through the wilderness of the tennessee mountains developed the taste and the qualifications that made him useful as an assistant in nicolette's scientific exploration of the great plateau where the mississippi river finds its sources and secured his appointment as second lieutenant of topographical engineers these labors brought him to washington where the same gallic restlessness which made the restraint of schools insupportable brought about an attachment, elopement, and marriage with the daughter of Senator Thomas H. Benton of Missouri. Reconciliation followed in good time, and the unexplored Great West being Benton's peculiar hobby, through his influence, Fremont was sent with an exploring party to the Rocky Mountains. Under his command, Similar expeditions were repeated again and again to that mysterious wonderland, and never were the wildest fictions read with more avidity than his official reports of daily adventure, danger, and discovery, of scaling unclimbed mountains, wrecking his canoes on the rapids of unvisited rivers, parlaying and battling with hostile Indians, and facing starvation while hemmed in by trackless snows. One of these journeys had led him to the Pacific coast when our war with Mexico let loose the spirit of revolution in the Mexican province of California. With his characteristic restless audacity, Fremont joined his little company of explorers to a local insurrectionary faction of American settlers, and raised a battalion of mounted volunteers. Though acting without government orders, He cooperated with the United States naval forces sent to take possession of the California coast, and materially assisted in overturning the Mexican authority and putting the remnant of her military officials to flight. At the close of the conquest, he was, for a short time, military governor, and when, through the famous gold discoveries, California was organized as a state and admitted to the Union— Fremont became, for a brief period, one of her first United States Senators. So salient a record could not well be without strong contrasts, and of these unsparing criticism took advantage. Hostile journals delineated Fremont as a shallow, vainglorious, woolly horse, mule-eating, free-love, nigger-embracing, black-republican. An extravagant, insubordinate, reckless adventurer, a financial spendthrift and political mountebank. As the reading public is not always skilful in winnowing truth from libel when artfully mixed in print, even the grossest calumnies were not without their effect in contributing to his defeat. But to the sanguine zeal of the new Republican Party, the Pathfinder was a heroic and ideal leader for upon the vital point at issue his anti-slavery votes and clear declarations satisfied every doubt and inspired unlimited confidence however picturesquely fremont for the moment loomed up as the standard-bearer of the republican party historical interest centers upon the second act of the philadelphia convention It shows us how strangely to human wisdom vibrate the delicately balanced scales of fate, or rather how inscrutable and yet how unerring are the far-reaching processes of divine providence. The principal candidate having been selected without contention or delay, the convention proceeded to a nomination for vice-president. On the first informal ballot William L. Dayton, of New Jersey, received 259 votes, and Abraham Lincoln, of Illinois, 110, the remaining votes being scattered among thirteen other names. The dominating thought of the convention being the assertion of principle, and not the promotion of men, there was no further contest, and though Mr. Dayton had not received a majority support, his nomination was nevertheless at once made unanimous. Those who are familiar with the eccentricities of nominating conventions when in this listless and drifting mood know how easily an opportune speech from some eloquent delegate or a few adroitly arranged delegation caucuses might have reversed this result, and imagination may not easily construct the possible changes in history which a successful campaign of the ticket in that form might have wrought. What would have been the consequences to America and humanity had the rebellion, even then being vaguely devised by southern hotspurs, burst upon the nation in the winter of 1856, with the nation's sword of commander-in-chief in in the hand of the impulsive Fremont, and Lincoln, inheriting the patient wariness and cool blood of three generations of pioneers and Indian fighters, wielding only the powerless gavel of vice-president? but the hour of destiny had not yet struck. The platform devised by the Philadelphia Convention was unusually bold in its affirmations, and most happy in its phraseology. Not only did it deny the authority of Congress, or of a territorial legislature, of any individual or association of individuals to give legal existence to slavery in any territory of the United States, it further resolved that the Constitution confers upon Congress sovereign power over the territories of the United States for their government, and that in the exercise of this power it is both the right and the duty of Congress to prohibit in the territories those twin relics of barbarism, polygamy and slavery. At Buchanan, recently nominated by the Democratic National Convention in Cincinnati, it aimed a barbed shaft. Resolved, that the highwayman's plea that might makes right, embodied in the Ostend circular, was in every respect unworthy of American diplomacy and would bring shame and dishonor upon any government or people that gave it their sanction. It demanded the maintenance of the principles of the Declaration of Independence, of the Federal Constitution, of the rights of the states, and the union of the states. It favored a Pacific Railroad. Congressional appropriations for national rivers and harbors, it affirmed liberty of conscience and equality of rights, it arraigned the policy of the administration, demanded the immediate admission of Kansas as a state, and invited the affiliation and cooperation of men of all parties, however differing from them in other respects, in support of the principles declared the nominees and platform of the philadelphia convention were accepted by the opposition voters of the free states with an alacrity and an enthusiasm beyond the calculation of even the most sanguine and in november a vote was recorded in their support which though then unsuccessful laid the secure foundation of an early victory and permanently established a great party destined to carry the country through trials and vicissitudes equal in magnitude and results to any which the world had hitherto witnessed. In that year, none of the presidential honors were reserved for the state of Illinois. While Lincoln thus narrowly missed a nomination for the second place on the Republican ticket, his fellow citizen and competitor, Douglas, failed equally to obtain the nomination he so much coveted as the candidate of the Democratic Party the democratic national convention had met at cincinnati on the second day of june eighteen fifty six if douglas flattered himself that such eminent services as he had rendered the south would find this reward his disappointment must have been severe while the benefits he had conferred were lightly estimated or totally forgotten former injuries inflicted in his name were keenly remembered and resented but three prominent candidates, Buchanan, Pierce, and Douglas, were urged upon the convention. The indiscreet crusade of Douglas's friends against old fogies in 1852 had defeated Buchanan and nominated Pierce. Now, by the turn of political fortune, Buchanan's friends were able to wipe out the double score by defeating both Pierce and Douglas most of the southern delegates seem to have been guided by the mere thought of present utility they voted to renominate pierce because of his subservient kansas policy forgetting that douglas had not only begun it but was their strongest ally to continue it when after a day of fruitless balloting they changed their votes to douglas buchanan and the so-called old fogey just returned from the english mission and therefore not handicapped by personal jealousies and heart-burnings had secured the firm adhesion of a decided majority mainly from the north the two-thirds rule was not yet fulfilled but at this juncture the friends of pierce and douglas yielded to the inevitable and withdrew their favourites in the interest of harmony on the seventeenth ballot therefore and the fifth day of the convention james buchanan of pennsylvania became the unanimous nominee of the democratic party for president and john c breckinridge of kentucky for vice-president the famous cincinnati platform holds a conspicuous place in party literature for length for vigor of language for variety of topics for boldness of declaration and yet strange to say its chief merit and utility lay in the skilful concealment of its central thought and purpose. About one-fourth of its great length is devoted to what to the eye looks like a somewhat elaborate exposition of the doctrines of the party on the slavery question. Eliminate the verbiage, and there only remains an endorsement of the principles contained in the organic laws establishing the territory of Kansas and Nebraska non-interference by congress with slavery in state and territory or in the district of columbia and the practical application of the principles is thus further defined resolved that we recognize the right of the people of all the territories including kansas and nebraska acting through the legally and fairly expressed will of a majority of actual residents and whenever the number of their inhabitants justifies it to form a constitution with or without domestic slavery, and be admitted into the Union upon terms of perfect equality with the other states. We have already seen how deliberately the spirit and letter of the principle was violated by the Democratic National Administration of President Pierce, and by nearly all the Democratic Senators and Representatives in Congress and we shall see how the more explicit resolution was again even more flagrantly violated by the Democratic National Administration and Party under President Buchanan. For the time, however, these well-rounded phrases were especially convenient, first, to prevent any schism in the Cincinnati Convention itself, and secondly, to furnish points for campaign speeches, politicians not having any pressing desire nor voters the requisite critical skill, to demonstrate how they left untouched the whole brood of pertinent queries which the discussion had already raised, and which at its next national convention were destined to disrupt and defeat the Democratic Party. For this occasion, the studied ambiguity of the Cincinnati platform made possible a last cooperation of North and South, in the face of carefully concealed mental reservations, to secure a presidential victory. It is not the province of this work to describe the incidents of the National Canvass, but only to record its results. At the election of November 1856, Buchanan was chosen president. The popular vote in the nation at large stood Buchanan, 1,838,169, Fremont, Fillmore, 874,534. By states, Buchanan received the votes of 14 slave states and five free states, a total of 174 electors, Fremont, the vote of 11 free states, a total of 114 electors, and Fillmore, the vote of one slave state, a total of eight electors in the campaign which preceded mr buchanan's election mr lincoln at the head of the fremont electoral ticket for illinois took a prominent part traversing the state in every direction and making about fifty speeches among the addresses which he thus delivered in the different counties it is interesting to read a fragment of a speech he made at galena illinois discussing the charge of sectionalism the identical pretext upon which the south inaugurated its rebellion against his administration four years afterwards you further charge us with being disunionists if you mean that it is our aim to dissolve the union i for myself answer that it is untrue for those who act with me i answer that it is untrue Have you heard us assert that as our aim? Do you really believe that such is our aim? Do you find it in our platform, our speeches, our conventions, or anywhere? If not, withdraw the charge. But you may say that though it is not our aim, it will be the result, if we succeed, and that we are therefore disunionists in fact. This is a grave charge you make against us and we certainly have a right to demand that you specify in what way we are to dissolve the union how are we to effect this the only specification offered is volunteered by mr fillmore in his albany speech his charge is that if we elect a president and vice-president both from free states it will dissolve the union this is open folly The Constitution provides that the President and Vice-President of the United States shall be of different states, but says nothing as to the latitude and longitude of those states. In 1828, Andrew Jackson of Tennessee and John C. Calhoun of South Carolina were elected President and Vice-President, both from slave states, but no one thought of dissolving the Union then on that account. In 1840, Harrison of Ohio and Tyler of Virginia were elected. In 1841, Harrison died, and John Tyler succeeded to the presidency, and William R. King of Alabama was elected acting vice president by the Senate. But no one supposed that the Union was in danger. In fact, at the very time Mr. Fillmore uttered this idle charge, the state of things in the United States disproved it. Mr. Pierce of New Hampshire and Mr. Bright of Indiana, both from Free States, are President and Vice-President, and the Union stands and will stand. You do not pretend that it ought to dissolve the Union, and the facts show that it won't, therefore the charge may be dismissed without further consideration. No other specification is made, and the only one that could be made is that the restoration of the restriction of 1820 making the united states territory free territory would dissolve the union gentlemen it will require a decided majority to pass such an act we the majority being able constitutionally to do all that we purpose would have no desire to dissolve the union Do you say that such restriction of slavery would be unconstitutional, and that some of the States would not submit to its enforcement? I grant you that an unconstitutional act is not a law. But I do not ask, and will not take your construction of the Constitution. The Supreme Court of the United States is the tribunal to decide such an answer, and we will submit to its decisions and if you do also, there will be an end of the matter. Will you? If not, who are the disunionists, you or we? We, the majority, would not strive to dissolve the union, and if any attempt is made, it must be by you, who so loudly stigmatize us as disunionists. But the union, in any event, will not be dissolved. We don't want to dissolve it, and if you attempt it we won't let you. With the purse and sword, the army and navy and treasury in our hands and at our command, you could not do it. This government would be very weak indeed if a majority with a disciplined army and navy and a well-filled treasury could not preserve itself when attacked by an unarmed, undisciplined, unorganized minority." all this talk about the dissolution of the union is humbug nothing but folly we do not want to dissolve the union you shall not with three presidential tickets in the field with the democrats seeking the election of buchanan and breckinridge the americans or know-nothings asking votes for fillmore and donelson and the republicans making proselytes for fremont and dayton the political campaign of eighteen fifty six was one of unabated activity and excitement. In the state of Illinois, the contest resulted in a drawn battle. The American Party held together with tolerable firmness in its vote for president, but was largely disintegrated in its vote on the ticket for state officers. The consequence was that Illinois gave a plurality of 9,164 for Buchanan, the Democratic candidate for president, while at the same time it gave a plurality of 4,729 for Bissell, the Republican candidate for governor. Half victory as it was, it furnished the Illinois Republicans a substantial hope of the full triumph which they achieved four years later. About a month after this election, at a Republican banquet given in Chicago on the 10th of December, 1856, Abraham Lincoln spoke as follows, partly in criticism of the last annual message of president pierce but more especially pointing out the rising star of promise we have another annual presidential message like a rejected lover making merry at the wedding of his rival the president felicitates himself hugely over the late presidential election he considers the result a signal triumph of good principles and good men and a very pointed rebuke of bad ones. He says the people did it. He forgets that the people, as he complacently calls only those who voted for Buchanan, are in a minority of the whole people by about 400,000 votes, one full tenth of all the votes. Remembering this, he might perceive that the rebuke may not be quite as durable as he seems to think that the majority may not choose to remain permanently rebuked by that minority. The President thinks the great body of us Fremonters, being ardently attached to liberty in the abstract, were duped by a few wicked and designing men. There is a slight difference of opinion on this. We think he, being ardently attached to the hope of a second term in the concrete, was duped by men who had liberty every way. He is the cat's paw. By much dragging of chestnuts from the fire for others to eat, his claws are burnt off to the gristle, and he is thrown aside as unfit for further use. As the fool said of King Lear when his daughters had turned him out of doors, he's a shelled peace-god." so far as the president charges us with a desire to change the domestic institutions of existing states and of doing everything in our power to deprive the constitution and laws of moral authority for the whole party on belief and for myself on knowledge i pronounce the charge an unmixed and unmitigated falsehood our government rests in public opinion Whoever can change public opinion can change the government practically just so much. Public opinion on any subject always has a central idea from which all its minor thoughts radiate. That central idea in our political opinion at the beginning was, and until recently has continued to be, the equality of men and although it has always submitted patiently to whatever of inequality there seemed to be as matter of actual necessity, its constant working has been a steady progress towards the practical equality of all men. The late presidential election was a struggle by one party to discard that central idea, and to substitute for it the opposite idea that slavery is right in the abstract, the workings of which, as a central idea, may be the perpetuity of human slavery and its extension to all countries and colors. Less than a year ago, the Richmond Enquirer, an avowed advocate of slavery regardless of color, in order to favor his views, invented the phrase state equality. And now the President, in his message, adopts the Enquirer's catchphrase, telling us the people have asserted the constitutional equality of each and all of the states of the Union as states. The President flatters himself that the new central idea is completely inaugurated, and so indeed it is, so far as the mere fact of a presidential election can inaugurate it. To us it is left to know that the majority of the people have not yet declared for it, and to hope that they never will. All of us who did not vote for Mr. Buchanan, taken together, are a majority of four hundred thousand. But in the late contest, we were divided between Fremont and Fillmore. Can we not come together for the future? Let every one who really believes and is resolved that free society is not and shall not be a failure, and who can conscientiously declare that in the past contest he has done only what he thought best. Let every such one have charity to believe that every other one can say as much. Thus, let bygones be bygones, let past differences as nothing be, and with steady eye on the real issue, let us reinaugurate the good old central ideas of the Republic. We can do it. The human heart is with us. God is with us we shall again be able not to declare that all states as states are equal nor yet that all citizens as citizens are equal but to renew the broader better declaration including both these and much more that all men are created equal though these fragments of addresses give us only an imperfect reflection of the style of mr lincoln's oratory during this period They nevertheless show its essential characteristics, a pervading clearness of analysis, and that strong tendency to axiomatic definition which gives so many of his sentences their convincing force and durable value. They also show us the combination, not often found in such happy balance, of the politician's discernment of fact with the statesman's wisdom of theory, how present forces of national life are likely to be moved by future impulses of national will. The politician could see the 400,000 voters who would give victory to some party in the near future. It required the wisdom of the statesman to divine that the public opinion which would direct how these votes were to be cast could most surely be created by an appeal to those generous central ideas of the human mind which favor equality against caste And freedom against slavery. Perhaps the most distinctively representative quality these addresses exhibit is the patriotic spirit and faith which led him to declare so dogmatically in this campaign of 1856 what the nation called upon him a few years later to execute by the stern powers of war we do not want to dissolve the Union, you shall not. Chapter two.